right, everybody, let's grab a seat. Sit down. So we, we are in the book of Acts here as we move towards the holidays. And I'll tell you what, one of the things that struck me in reading through the text this week, and we're in, we're in chapter 10, was how there are certain things that, that we, we know that are absolutely meant to go together. And, and I know that because I, I could say the first word, and I think that you could probably fill in the blank for the second word. If I said peanut butter and... Jelly. Yes, that, that, that's obvious, right? Salt and pepper. Hugs and kisses. Bacon and everything. Anything, literally anything goes with bacon. <laughs> Salsa goes with bacon. It all goes with bacon, right? Uh, but there are also some things that don't go together. Like, things like aluminum foil in the microwave. You ever try that? It's, a, it's, like, it's like 4th of July. Don't, I don't suggest it. Electrical appliances in the bathtub. Nope, nope, you don't, you don't want to try that either. How about a glass of orange juice right after you brush your teeth? Nope. I wouldn't suggest that. Now, look, some of those are silly and they're, you know, they're superficial. Some of them are, are, are kind of serious. And I'll tell you what, none of those serious ones, though, compare to the anger and the animosity that we are able to share with each other as humans. Like, humans are absolutely meant to go together. There's no doubt about that. But it's also very clear that many people don't want anything to do with other people. And it's, it's, it's really a sad aspect of our society. It's not anything new. We can go all the way back to the beginning. You can see Cain killing his brother Abel and then responding to God. What, am I bro my brother's keeper? Like, really? Yeah, or, or, or even fast forward to a guy named Absalom who tries to overthrow the king who happens to be his father, King David. Absalom ends, ends up losing his life for that. And, and thousands of years of history of warring tribes and nations. And here in the book of Acts, we're in the first century, and we have something similar going on. We've got this group of Jewish believers, they're the, the people of God, and then you've got the Gentiles, this other group, non-Jewish people. And, and they've been battling for thousands of years. And in Jerusalem at this time, and think about this, Jerusalem is the, it's the city of David. It's the place where the Jewish temple is. It's the promised land for God's people, and yet it's under Roman occupation, military occupation. If that's not bad enough, the Jews are paying taxes to Rome, which is in Italy. 
So this is not a good scene for them at all. And Rome is ruling brutally by force. They have no choice. Now, on the other side of that coin, you've got this Jewish group who've been told through the instruction of God that they are not to associate with Gentiles. They can't go into a Gentile's home, or if they invite a Gentile into their home, then they would be considered ceremonially unclean, which would mean they would not be able to go to the temple and worship. So they can't be in the presence of God if they don't go through a purification ritual, which takes about a week. And so you can see that these two groups of people do not mix. And we see this fight over and over and over all throughout the scriptures. And it's something that continues today. Now, the text that we're going to look at here, Acts chapter 10, we're going to look at a a Gentile by the name of Cornelius and Peter, who's a Jew, and how in Christ God is eliminating the distinctions, the separation between these two groups of people. Now, this is the single longest narrative, longest story in the book of Acts. It takes all of chapter 10 and the first 18 verses of chapter 11. We're not going to read the entire dialogue because there is, there's some repetition and it is a long story. But I'd, I'd really encourage you guys, at some point today, later today, go back and read through the story. It might take you 10 minutes to read through the whole thing. And you're probably going to gain some things out of this that I'm not going to be able to cover because it's just a large section of text. So again, we will be starting in chapter 10 and verse 1. Before we do that, let's invite God and his spirit to lead us in his word today. Father, what a gift it is to gather on Sunday morning and to be in your word together, to be in this place, this family that you call your church So we pray, God, that your spirit would help us to understand what it is that you were doing in Peter's life and in Cornelius' life and what you want to do in our lives as well. Father, I, I, I so appreciate this family, this church, the believers that have gathered because of you and your great name. And I pray that you'd meet each one of us where we're at today, Father, and draw us to you. May you have your way in us as you did with Peter and Cornelius. And Lord, may you be glorified in all of it. So thank you again for today, for your word, for your spirit, for your grace and your mercy and for your church. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Now, what I've done here, again, is uh, you've got this in your notes. So I hope you do have some notes because the, the sections that we're going to read, I put in boxes all throughout that. As I said, we're not going to read the whole thing. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along as well. You just have to jump a little bit as we go through the text. So, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. It's a very popular Roman name. A centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Now, this word God-fearing, that his family's God-fearing, he's not, he's not become a Jew. That would require a very painful circumcision, and most men would avoid that if at all possible. But it does mean that they are sympathetic to the, to the Jewish God. They're not praying to pagan ones. And so one day... About three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at him in fear, which is exactly what happens anytime an angel comes. What is it, Lord? He asked. And the angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering 
for God. Now, when he responds, Cornelius responds, what is it, Lord? This isn't capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, that he's saying. This is like master or a very respectful way of uh, <laughs> addressing someone who has authority over you. And this memorial offering, why, why it says this has gone up, this is like, this is temple language. When they would burn an offering and that smoke would rise up, it would go up. What he's, the angel is saying here is that what you're doing for the poor right now is like an offering. Verse 5, now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. So they're in Joppa. That's where, that's, uh, that's, by the, that's on the coast there. So what, what, what does he do? What does Cornelius do? He grabs two of his servants and one of his devout soldiers. And he sends them to go to Joppa to get Peter. So he does what God tells him and he sends these guys to get them. So we pick this up here in verse 9. About noon, the following day, they, these are the ones that Cornelius has sent, they were on their journey and approaching the city, and Peter went up on the roof to pray. Now, any Jewish boy would, would pray three times a day, so it's fitting that, that Peter is finding a, a secluded place to pray. Verse 10, he became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. So, What's being described here when it says he saw heaven opened, this, this is the language that you find in the book of Revelation, and, it, and it's what you find in the prophets in Ezekiel and in Daniel and Isaiah, where there's almost this, this, sheet, this blanket that's pulled aside, this curtain, and they're able to see into some place, some dimension that we don't, that we're not able to see into. And, and they see this vision. God is allowing them to see exactly what, what he wants them to see that we, we, we just don't normally see. So... Again, this is language that's used repeated. The sheet, it contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. That is the one verse that every hunter memorizes. <laughs> Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Now, a, a note here, when it talks about these animals, the four-footed animals, the birds, the reptiles, he's not just talking about unkosher animals. This is a picture of a, a lot of animals together, clean animals and unclean animals. And the picture is, it's okay that they're together. Now, a, a Jewish boy would never mix those. But God is giving this image to Peter saying, no, it, it's all right that they're together. But Peter replies, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, uh, this is... Your instruction to me is never to do that. Verse 15, the voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. That's, that's a pretty harsh rebuke. And what happens is it's actually three times that that's said. Do not say anything is unclean that God has said is clean. And, and again, he's, we know that he's not just talking about food here it, because you could go all the way back to Mark chapter seven and you can see a story where Jesus says, look, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of him, what comes out of his heart. And then the narrator, Mark says, this was Jesus saying that all foods were clean. So that, that goes back even before this. So what does Peter do? Peter takes six men with him. 
as these three men come and say, hey, look, you, you need to come back and, uh, and see our master in Caesarea. He needs to hear from you. So Peter takes six witnesses <laughs> to what's going to happen to him when he goes to this Roman centurion's house. Pick, the, pick it up in verse 27. When Peter gets there, he goes inside. He found a large gathering of people. Which is good. He brought some friends, right? He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. But may I ask why you sent for me? Now, when Peter says here that it's against the law, it's not like he's going to get a traffic ticket. He's not, it is against their written law, but this is, it's like taboo. This is not good. I'm going to have to go through a ritual, you know, a, a purification process after this. This is not something that I'm supposed to do. But because God told me, I came without raising any objection. And so what happens next is Cornelius explains to him, okay, thank you for coming. God told me in a vision I was to send for you. And why? Because you have something I need to hear. So we're here. Please tell us what God has for us. We pick it up in verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism or partiality, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And right after Peter said, it's almost as if the Holy Spirit is interrupting Peter's sermon. The Spirit comes on these Gentiles and the family of Cornelius in the same way that it did at Pentecost. There is no doubt what God is doing here. God is not just for the Jews anymore. He is expanding his spirit to the rest of the world. So it, it, this is great. What does Peter do? A Jewish man welcomed into a, a Gentile's home, knows he's unclean, decides to stay there for a few days. I mean, that, that's a great picture of the barrier that's being broken here as Peter goes in. And after this, he makes his way back to Jerusalem. And as you can imagine, word has spread. Gossip, whatever you want to call it, has spread that this is going on and Peter has to answer for himself. It says, the apostles, this is chapter 11, verse 1, the apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, those are the Jewish believers, they criticized him and said, you went into the house of an uncircumcised man and ate with them. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. Notice what they're not upset about. They, they don't complain that Peter shared the word of God with them. They're, they're complaining that Jesus went into their house, that he had fellowship with them, you know, which presents a problem for the church. It's that's how we're going to have to operate. Well, I can't come into your house, but I, I can tell you about this good news of Jesus from outside. 
And, and that's, you know, that's what God is breaking down here is this act of fellowship. Verse 15, Peter gives a response. He explains, he fills in the gaps. He says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. And he's referring to Pentecost. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift that he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could oppose God? I wish we all had that attitude. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Another way of saying that is God has welcomed even Gentiles into the family of God, the kingdom of God. Isn't it great? They celebrate this because they're not going to oppose God. Now, one of the things interesting about this is what Luke has done here is he's compiled three conversion stories in the last three chapters, in chapters 8, 9, and 10. You've got an Ethiopian Sumerian in chapter 8. You have the Jewish Pharisee, Saul, in chapter 9, and then the Roman centurion and his family here in chapter 10. And really, it's a neatly packaged triplet of conversion stories, which are all fulfilling Jesus's instruction to his disciples in Acts chapter 1. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Samaria, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And this is what's going on. They are witnesses. And one of the things that Luke is trying to do through this, remember, he's writing to one of his friends named Theophilus. He's trying to help him understand how in the world did this thing explode? How did the church grow, not just geographically, but socially, ethnically, all of it through the power of the Holy Spirit? And that, that's an important key. I think Noah made this point last week. It's not Philip or Peter or even Paul that are really responsible for what's going on. Yes, they're going, but it is, it's Jesus through his spirit in these people that is growing the church. And that's one of the reasons that I titled this message, The Conversion of Peter and Cornelius. Because both of these men are experiencing a form of conversion in, in their lives. You know, I made this point three weeks ago that conversion is a process. It's not something that generally just happens once and you're done with it. Like you, 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 you come to Jesus and then that's fine. We put that in my back pocket and I go back to doing whatever it is I was doing before. Now, conversion or sanctification is a process that happens for the rest of our lives. And this story is a great example of this because we know that Peter's a believer. We know that he has the Holy Spirit. We saw that in Acts chapter two. But Peter still is his mind, his behavior is being changed in his submission to God. That is an ongoing conversion in his life. And what we're going to see is actually the conversion that happens in Peter's life is, I think, more dramatic than what happens in Cornelius' life. But let's start with Cornelius. What can we learn about God and his mission for the church in Cornelius? Now, Luke gives a very specific description of Cornelius. He lives in Caesarea. It's a town on the coast northwest of Jerusalem, named after the famous Caesar Augustus. He's a Roman officer. He's a centurion, which means he's uh, uh, overseeing at least 100 men and probably more than that. But his family is unique because it, it, it prays to this Jewish God. 
And to top it off, he's giving charity. And, and what's an important detail in here is the people he's giving to charity to in this town of Caesarea are mainly Jewish people. So he's contributing to them in the way that, that the scriptures say he should. Sounds like he's a pretty good man. He's got a, a good resume. You know what's interesting is that of, of the three centurions that I, I could think of, the centurion that Jesus runs into in Luke chapter 7, the centurion at the cross, and the centurion here in this story, they're all told, they're all spoken well of. So by all accounts, he looks like a good man. But I'll tell you what, he is as Roman as Roman can be. And, and that's a point of Luke's description. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's no more Roman than this guy right here, which, I mean, he was, it, it says that his local community enjoyed him. But outside of that, this would make him about as popular with the Jewish community as Californians are in Texas, <laughs> which is as to say, turn around <laughs> and get that U-Haul back to where you came from. I, Look, from the outside, Cornelius, he looks like he's got a relationship with God, doesn't he? He's praying. He's following at least some of the commands of God. He's given to the poor. And he's teaching his family to do it as well. But if there's anything that this story teaches us, it's that that in and of itself is not enough to have a relationship with the true God. He still needs to be converted. One of the great truths that we learn from Cornelius in this story is this. A religious resume is not enough. You still need Jesus. See, it's during Peter's sermon that the Spirit comes on them. The same way it did at Pentecost. And it's no coincidence that this happens right after Peter says this. All the prophets testify about him, Jesus, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Bam, Holy Spirit comes on them. That whole family believes. And that's the change. That's day one of conversion in his life. You know, be, being a spiritual person, a person who prays, even somebody who, you know, gives to the poor, that, that's not enough to reconcile us to God. Our forgiveness of sin, our reconciliation to God comes through Jesus, not through any religious acts on our own. Now, giving to the poor is good. Cornelius is commended for doing that, and we should do it too, but it's not saving faith. And, and don't we all know someone that fits this description? Friends, family that, that are earnestly trying to make their way to God on their own? It's what, what, you know, they could be very sincere in doing it too. It's what I, what I think when I hear people say, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. It's like they've crafted their own way to God or their own understanding of who God is. And this story should tell us that's not, that doesn't work for God. That's not how he's designed things. You know, at least Cornelius seems genuine. In his reaching out to God, I don't know exactly what he's praying for, but he's going to have his prayers answered. It's why I think that he sends Peter. See, this story, it's not about how God is universally accepting anybody who prays or gives to charity. I mean, we see that in Acts chapter 17 when Paul is addressing a group of 
uh, non-Jewish people. And he says, look, there was a time when God overlooked the ignorance of worshiping these idols, but that time is gone. Now he calls us to repentance in Jesus. So this story, it's not about God wanting religious, moral people, no matter who or what they pray to, as long as they're doing good. As author N.T. Wright puts this very well, he says, it means that uh, there are no ethnic, geographical, cultural, or moral barriers any longer in the way of anyone and everyone being offered forgiveness and new life. That is a very inclusive statement. Anyone who wants to receive forgiveness can. That is a message far more powerful than the easygoing laissez-faire tolerance with contemporary Western society that which contemporary Western society so easily embraces, which this all paths lead to God. Oh, we're just, we're, we're describing the same God. We just use different languages. He, this is not what Peter is saying at all. And we can see that in Cornelius's response. See, Cornelius didn't want God or Peter for that matter to tolerate him. He didn't want to say, well, this is my path to God. Just leave me alone. No, he wanted to be welcomed, forgiven, healed, and transformed. And he was. And how do we know that he was? Because he does exactly what God tells him to do. In faith. He doesn't know Peter. But God says, hey, you need to send for this guy and he's going to come. And there's a detail here when Peter retells this story in chapter 11 that we don't have in chapter 10, which says that Cornelius, the angel told Cornelius this. He said, he... Peter is going to bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. So, of course, he says, yes, I'll send for him. Now, there are a lot of people in the New Testament who express faith in Jesus that don't experience the Holy Spirit in the way that Cornelius and his family does right here. Because I think that God is trying to make a very intentional, specific point. He's making it clear by using the very same thing that happened at Pentecost, to which these Jewish believers probably felt pretty, pretty good about happening to themselves. And now it's happening to the Gentiles, this group that we're not really supposed to associate with. But when that happens, God is saying very clearly, my salvation is for the world in Jesus which would have been absolutely shocking to the Jews, absolutely shocking to, to Peter, his six friends, and then anybody past this. He's a very pivotal point in the book of Acts because it's the door that opens the floodgates of the gospel to the world, not just the families of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob anymore. Now this good news includes a very specific detail that wasn't included to the Ethiopian eunuch, but is very clear here. God is saying there is no longer a clean, unclean distinction between people in Christ. That barrier is gone. And that becomes the catalyst of missions to Asia, Macedonia, Syria, Italy. Gentiles being welcomed into the family of God in Christ. And here's the key. They don't have to become Jewish in order to do it which every uncircumcised male said, hallelujah. <laughs> they, 
They don't have to become Jewish in order to do it. Now, Jewish men don't have to become Gentiles either. What, what God is saying is that, that that barrier is gone. You are all welcomed into the family. And this is going to be one of the most important things that is distinct about my church as we move forward. This is why the Apostle Paul would repeat this in Galatians chapter 3. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And he's not saying there's no difference between men and women. There's no difference between Jews and Gentiles. He's saying in Christ, all of you sit at the same table and share in fellowship under the name of Jesus. That is something that is not just lacking back then. But today, our inability to sit with people that we disagree with, God would say in Christ, that stuff needs to go. John Polhill has a great commentary on this. Just right to my heart. He says, it's simply not possible, not possible to fully accept someone with whom you are unwilling to share the intimacy of table fellowship. If you cannot sit down and share a meal with someone that you disagree with who is in Christ, how in the world can you accept them, be a part of their family? See, the early church had to solve the problem of kosher food laws in order to launch a mission to the Gentiles. Again, they couldn't go out and say, hey, look, this is a great thing. You're invited into the family of God. No, I can't go in your house. No, you can't touch me, but you're a part of God's family. See, they had to reconcile that. He says, purity, distinctions, and human discrimination are of the single piece. They are the same. Which leads us to Peter. Now, I tell you what, there's so much in this story that I've missed before this week. And that's why, again, I'd encourage you to go back and reread it again, because there is a lot in here. And one of these details is so cool. So Cornelius sends these three men, two servants and a soldier, to go get Peter in Joppa. Joppa is 35 miles south from Caesarea on the coast. And he's told by these three guys that there's a Roman Gentile who needs to hear, who wants to hear what he has to say. Now, if that doesn't sound familiar to you, it, it, it should, because there's a very, another famous Jewish messenger of God who found himself in Joppa, to which God said, I want you to take this message of forgiveness to this Gentile group of people. And his name was Jonah. But Jonah got on a ship and went the opposite direction. J Jonah said, uh-uh, I'm not doing that. Because you're going to bring grace to those people, and I do not like them. <laughs> and, and there's no mistake in the similarities of these two stories. Because this time, Peter, he responds in faith, and he goes where God sends him. Now, if Cornelius represents a, a person, you know, in some ways, not in every way, that, that knows about God, but doesn't know him personally. He's someone who's outside of the family, but he's converted through believing in Christ to being welcomed into the family of God. Peter, in, in many ways, can represent someone who does have a relationship with God, yet who is still learning what that looks like. Going through the process of sanctification, being made into the likeness of Jesus throughout every day of his life. And I think that that probably describes most of us in this room. And I, wanna, I just want to start by looking at Peter's, his reluctance initially. And, and we got to give Peter a break. 
You know, Peter says, oh, no, I, I, I'm not, I couldn't eat those foods. They're, I've never done anything like that. And you, first of all, you have to think, well, maybe he thinks he's being tested. Maybe he thinks, his, again, his loyalty is being tested like it was where he failed last time. And so he says no three times. And God says, no, finally, you're going to do this, Peter. And so Peter is in the process of conversion. Because, I mean, think about this. Who established the rules of kosher anyway? That's God. That's in the Torah, in the instruction. And so even if he doesn't understand that, that what he's talking about here is not actually just food, but he's also talking about people, it would mean for him to do this would be to do something in the opposite fashion that God has ever done in the past. See, Peter's got to trust that God wants him to do something now different than he's asked him to do for his entire life. And that can't be an easy decision. I think about all the things in my life ingrained that, that I don't want to change, that, that I think honor God, and this is one of those. But Peter trusts God. It's one of the great things that we learn from Peter. Even though he doesn't understand, even though it goes against his instinct, he trusts God and he's willing to go and bring Jesus to the uncomfortable places. You know, I feel like that, that God has really been pressing the, this same point on me for the last few months. And so I keep sharing it on Sundays because God won't get it out of my head. And I guess I'll keep doing it until God stops but I'm asking myself, like, when was the last time I actually listened to that voice of God? And why do I even have to ask myself, when was the last time I listened to the voice of God? I should be looking for that and doing it regularly. Go going to the places that are uncomfortable for me. See, this is what Peter does. When I was sent for, I came without raising an objection. So when I talk about going to uncomfortable places, I'm not talking about going bungee jumping. Not talking about hang gliding or kite surfing or any of those other things that might make you feel uncomfortable. Talking about overcoming your reluctance to be in a place that God wants you to bring him to. You know, we, we just finished an eight-week Bible study, a marriage study here on Friday nights that was... Uh, um, Noah and, and Heather led, but it's a, a Ted Cunningham is a, a pastor in uh, uh, Branson, Missouri. It, it, great guy, funny guy. And I'll tell you what, he, in this marriage study, he said, you know, sometimes you have to have awkward conversations with your spouse if you want to have a healthy marriage. You have to address the uncomfortable things if you want to be healthy. And he coined, they had this phrase, he said, awkward is awesome. And I don't think we believe that at all. Nobody wants to be in an awkward place. We, we avoid them, if at all possible. But, but the same is true in, in, in what God is describing here, because it's exactly what Peter does. He goes to the uncomfortable place. You know, uh, a few weeks ago, I, I, was, uh, I was at home and just working working outside, and I heard this little voice in my head say, hey, you should go do this thing. And it wasn't like, Corbett, this is God. 
please go do the thing. It's just, you know, it's, it's the voice that says, hey, you should go do this thing. And because it wasn't telling me to do something that contradicts God's word, I thought I should probably listen to that. And so I went and I did the thing and it wasn't a big deal. Um, but afterwards I found out that that was the answer to someone else's prayer. Because I, and I don't always listen to it. That's what kills me. But I did this time, and I, and I found out that, that that was a blessing to someone else who'd been, who'd been praying for that. And, you know, th- think about what, what Peter is in here. I'm not, I'm not telling you that you need to listen to all the voices in your head. I have no idea what voices are in your head. If they're anything like the voices in my head, half of them need to go away, okay? Because they are, they are not from God. The point is, is are, are you willing to go? Are you willing to listen to God when he tells you to go somewhere that you don't want to go because he wants you to be Jesus to someone else? See, that, that's exactly what Peter's being asked to do. All his life, all his life he's followed the Torah and he knows if he goes in the presence of these unclean people, he's not going to be able to worship. He's not going to be able to be in the presence of God in the temple And yet Peter is willing, his obedience to preach Jesus, where God sent him, was the answer to another man's prayer. And unlike Jonah, he goes. So what about us? Oh yeah, so this is the answer. As the angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial before God. This is the angel telling Cornelius, your, are, your, your, your prayers are going to be answered. So what about us? What about us? Well, I think it's just as true that our faithfulness to share Jesus in word and in action in the uncomfortable places that God wants to send us may be the answer to someone else's prayer. We need to listen to that voice of God and to go especially when it's comfortable. You may need to call somebody you've been disenfranchised from. You may need to ask for forgiveness. You may need to extend forgiveness. But by all means, listen to the voice of God when he sends you to those places on his behalf. Now, what do we learn about Christ in this story? It's one of the most important truths that we can. See, in Christ, the barriers are gone. There are no ethnic geographical, cultural, or moral, moral barriers in the way of anyone, anyone being offered forgiveness and new life in him. On God's terms, not theirs, but forgiveness is offered. So Peter goes back to Jerusalem and he's got to explain what has just happened. <laughs> he's in trouble. But when he explains it, and this is, is so cool, the Jewish believers, they accept it. They're, they're amazed. They, see, they realize God is uniting his church in Christ, not through their shared customs or their food choices, in the same way that we don't share many of those things. But all of you are here today because you share in the family of Jesus. Now, and we don't always treat each other like we're in the family of Jesus. But in spite of our differences, and we have a lot of them, 
See, part of the goal of Christ is to bring unity to his church, to celebrate our differences because of him. See, that's one of the, the, the things that is supposed to be a, this shining light to a world out there is these people come from every different place and yet they still get along because of Jesus. Now, we're about to celebrate Thanksgiving this coming week, which I think is a great opportunity, first of all, to be thankful to God for all that he's done in and through us and for us. But it's also an opportunity to ask ourselves where we're resisting God's push to take Jesus to these uncomfortable places, where we need to welcome people into our homes, where we need to let grudges go because Christ is the reason that we gather. Now, I, I want to close today with a story that I came across this week. Uh, it's been out for a while, but I just saw it in USA Today um, this week about a Thanksgiving family. It says this, what, what started as a text to a wrong number has led to years of friendship and shared Thanksgiving meals for Jamal Hinton and Wanda Dench. A holiday tradition born from a happy mistake that's gone viral every year since. In 2016, Dench sent a text to a number she believed belonged to her grandson to invite him to Thanksgiving dinner at her house in Mesa, Arizona. Turns out she accidentally texted Hinton, a complete stranger at the time. Hinton asked who the number was, and when Dench sent a photo of herself to him, he replied, you not my grandma. <laughs> Can I still get a plate, though? <laughs> Dench replied, of course. That's what grandmas do. Since that text mix up, Hinton has received an invitation to celebrate the holiday with Dench's family every year. After he posted their text interaction on Twitter in 2016, the heartwarming story went viral. And on Sunday, he confirmed via social media that the duo spent Thanksgiving together again. We are all set for six years, Hinton tweeted. Now, I, I, I have no idea what her motivation was for welcoming this young man into her home, but I do know what ours should be. In, in Jesus, we should eliminate those barriers of the people that we disagree with and invite them into the grace and mercy and family of God. Romans chapter 10, Paul reminds us, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Why don't we celebrate that this Thanksgiving? Amen. Pray for the unity of God's church, of this community, of this nation, and of this world. Not because we have the right political leaders or our economy is amazing, but because Christ has offered forgiveness to his church. To give thanks to God for his spirit and for Peter's faithfulness to go to Cornelius. Because if you're a Gentile in this room today, 
You can thank God for that interaction that the gospel was shared with you. And you can take that good news and you can generously share it just like Peter did. Let's pray. Father, what a gift that there's no other way to explain it. It is an absolute miracle that you, Father, have made a way for us to be reconciled in your son, Jesus, and, and that you desire that we would welcome people into that family under your name and your grace and your mercy. Father, I, I pray that this family, this church community would be welcoming, would be a place that people are attracted to, not because we have all the answers, but because we love in the way that you love us. We give of ourselves in the way that you have given yourself to us. So, Father, whatever it is that we need to respond to in you this week, I pray that our hearts would listen and that we would go. We would share Jesus in our lives with our family, with our friends, and with this community. And throughout all of it, you would be glorified, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to continue our worship with our offering. Thanks for being here today, guys. Hope it warmed up as we were here for a while. Have an amazing Sunday.